Are you ready to make the most of your oil and gas mineral rights? Welcome to the Mineral Rights Podcast. Get the knowledge and resources you need to manage your minerals and royalties. Here is your host, Matt Sands. Hello and welcome to the Mineral Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Sands, and I'm here to help you make the most of your mineral rights and royalties. And I'm joined by my co-host, Justin Williams. Morning, Justin. Good morning, Matt. And uh, Justin, we have an interesting episode today. We're going to talk a little bit about the outlook for crude oil prices for the remainder of 2022. Uh, we've talked about this a lot this year just because it's been such a dynamic market. I know we did a special report in episode 143 right after Russia invaded Ukraine, and we talked about the impact on energy prices as a result of that action. And so a lot has changed since then, Justin. It sure has, you know, and, and one of the interesting outcomes of this has been that it seems like the the chain of oil and gas supplies is really being looked at hard. And some really interesting information is coming out of that from different areas where the United States is having a deficit and the reason for the price is going up and up. Yeah, the, there's definitely a deficit in terms of the supply of crude oil versus the current demand, you know, globally. And we'll break that all down. And one of the things that has happened recently also, and we'll talk about this, is the EU recently announced an embargo on Russian crude oil. So they agreed that they will stop purchasing Russian oil. You know, I noticed that right after that announcement, prices spiked up to over $120 a barrel. So Justin, I expect this to be just even more upward pressure on prices. Absolutely. It, it'll be interesting to see where it stops, but it, it's going to be a lot of pressure that we're looking at down the road. So I think where we want to start here, Justin, is we'd look at the global supply and demand picture. So I think this will set the backdrop for sort of what things might do later this year. And let's take a look at the U.S. first. The U.S. production of oil was as of March of 2022, which is the latest available data from the U.S. Energy Information Administration, reported that production of crude oil was right around 11.65 million barrels per day. This is below the pre-pandemic levels, which we reached around 13 million barrels per day at the end of 2019. The U.S. is still the top global producer of crude oil and natural gas, but I do think that could change, you know, unless we shift the focus from moving away from fossil fuels to providing cheap and reliable energy in the form of, you know, all forms of energy, whether it's crude oil, natural gas, solar, wind, nuclear, you name it. I think it needs to be an all of the above situation, but that's not what we're going to talk about today. And so, you know, I think the, the moral of the story there is the uh, supply of crude oil is definitely up from the lows in 2020, but we are not back to where we were at the end of 2019. Now, looking at the global demand picture, we are almost up to that demand level that we saw before the pandemic, the peak was at around 102.13 million barrels per day in August of 2019. Global demand is currently sitting at 101.38 million barrels per day, again, as of earlier this year. So, you know, Justin, we're pretty close to being at that global demand level that we saw before the pandemic, which was right around that 102 million barrels per day. We're, we're less than a million barrels per day from that uh, peak demand. That's right. We're, we're getting quite close and the supply just isn't keeping up. So global supply of crude oil is estimated to be 99 million barrels as of February of 22. 
And this represents an estimated supply gap of around 1.6 million barrels per day, which is that's a pretty substantial uh, deficit there, Matt. Before the pandemic, the U.S. shell industry acted as a spare capacity that was able to quickly respond to any increases in demand, and they could fill that gap. But things are really different at this time. And one of the things that we're going to talk about is drilled but uncompleted wells, Matt. And this this makes a huge difference for the oil and gas industry for their ability to quickly turn on that supply. Those are wells that are drilled, but they're not yet fractured and can be brought onto production. And again, it's important because the time window that it takes to get those completed is much shorter than the drilling process. So that's essentially their inventory. And, and in fact, in the U.S., drilled but uncompleted wells is a near an all-time shell boom low that we haven't seen since 2014. And the inventory of drilled uncompleted wells sits at 4,223 wells, with the majority of these, 1,200 plus, in the Permian Basin. To put this in perspective, the high was just under 9,000 in June of 2020, but has been on a sharp decline since then. A year ago, June 2021, ducks count was around 6,100 wells. And Matt, this is that's a huge decrease, and you just don't hear about drilled but uncompleted wells very often. Yeah, it's something that isn't talked about a lot, but it, we can glean a lot of information from that duck count because, just like you mentioned, Justin, it does represent that available inventory of well bores that they can come in and complete and bring on production and bring that extra supply to the market relatively quickly. Now, I think it's important to think about the reason for that decline. And I do think there's a couple different things. And we've talked about all of these over the past several months. And I think that one of the things is there is increased capital discipline by US oil and gas companies, again, following that wave of bankruptcies we saw in 2020 when oil prices went negative. Uh, At the same time, we have political headwinds from the Biden administration. And really, this is not just a US thing. This is a global phenomenon. And there's a big push to move away from fossil fuels, to electrify things, to move towards solar and wind. And so that, you know, when you think about investments and and capital, the companies are looking at where it's favorable to make investments. And that is in these transition, energy transition companies and, and green energy and that kind of a thing. Whereas in the past, it was more acceptable to invest in oil and gas. Now, I think that's going to potentially change when the realities of the return on investment are seen by these sources of capital, you know, they're going to want to, at the end of the day, it's a, a capitalist market. They want to get the most return on investment. And so I do think we're going to probably see a transition or a shift back towards oil and gas, just also because it's becoming more politically acceptable to increase production as a, a patriotic or a nationalist thing to do to sort of protect against the evil Russian empire, so to speak so that we're not buying oil from Russia, which is kind of what we'll talk about here in a minute with the recent embargo that the European Union announced. So in the end of the day, the political headwinds have been there that have made it harder to get access to capital to reinvest into drilling new wells. You have that coupled with that increased capital discipline where they're looking at being more measured in their reinvestment, you know, not spending more than they bring in in terms of free cash flow. And then also, even with the higher prices and with you know higher profits and more cash on hand, companies are looking at reinvesting that into share buybacks and increasing dividends to help appease shareholders and to meet their targets, frankly, because the way that these executives are compensated are based on a set of metrics 
And one of those things is total shareholder return, which is basically how did your stock price do? And the way that you can help boost stock prices by share buybacks and dividends. And so instead of drilling in new wells and growing production. So all of that, you know, from the public markets, we're seeing that. But then private companies are like, well, we're not faced with those same constraints. We are looking to increase production. And they go out and try to hire another rig or, you know, contract with another frack spread. And they just can't get there from here because we have supply chain constraints that are still in the system in terms of lack of labor and materials like pipe and frack sand. So even if they do want to increase production, we are seeing some of a constraint on the ability to do so just because of what I mentioned. So Justin, you want to talk about kind of why this is important? You know, I know we talked about ducks being the leading indicator of capital investment and future production rates, but can you break that down a little bit further? Sure. And Matt, this information comes from a really interesting report from Bison Interest, which we'll link to in the show notes, I'm sure. But the article goes on to say, when a capital isn't abundant, producers tend to boost investment, increase drilling relative to completions. And so the duck inventory rises. When capital is scarce, producers prioritize well completion over new drilling, allowing them to maintain those production levels with less capital. So as long as there's ducks left to be completed, we're in a good case. And the report goes on to say that, you know, really we're on a trajectory with ducks that are going to lead us to more shortage. And we really need to see the supply of those drilled but uncompleted wells available to us. And whether it's factors of the companies not being able to receive financing to drill those wells or supply constraints, Matt, like you spoke about, we just really need to see that inventory start to come online so that we can scale production. Yeah, I think that is absolutely right. And I think they, they look at a really interesting thing. I th- I'd highly recommend everyone take a look at this blog post because it talks about the ratio of the rig count to the frack spread count. And what you want to see is you're increasing you know, the number of locations through drilling you know, faster than you're completing those. And you know, like we mentioned, the duck inventory, which is sort of the lagging indicator of that has been falling. And But then you look at, is that trend going to keep continuing? And I think it will, because if you look at the drilling rig count versus the frack spread count, we have higher number of frack spreads running than we do rigs in terms of the ratio. And normally it needs to be almost like a two to one ratio in terms of the number of drilling rigs versus the number of frack spreads, just because it is so much quicker to complete a well and bring it on production than it is to drill it. So you need to be drilling kind of twice as many wells or twice as fast in terms of the number of rigs that are running versus frack spread because they'll be able to catch up very quickly to that drilling rig. So I think we're still in that situation where we are going to see a drawdown of the duck inventory, which is is bearish for the U.S.'s ability to increase production beyond where we are today. I think we can maintain production potentially, but I do not think we're going to be able to continue to increase production just because of, of that. You know, once we hit a critical level in that duck count, you know, I think production is going to start falling unless we start to spend more money investing new, uh, and drilling new wells. And to that, Matt, the article also mentions, which I, this plays exactly into what you were saying, you know, unconventional wells and the most prolific shell plays tend to exhibit a 70% decline in the first year of production and another 30% in the second year. And so, you know, what does that really say? Well, it means to keep that level even flat, they have to keep drilling new wells if, if you've got those steep decline rates. Now you hit the nail on the head there. That's a really important thing to think about. You know, when we have the characteristics of most of the wells in the U.S. Are, are very much just like what Justin said. So we do need to keep 
reinvesting money in order to just maintain production flat. You would think that you wouldn't, but that that's definitely the case here in the U.S. So it's it's an interesting conundrum that we're in. You know, hopefully we'll see more of an interest. And I've kind of you know beat on this drum since the beginning of the year. Is I would like to see even U.S. publicly traded oil and gas companies reinvest more money into drilling new wells. I do think that you know increasing the dividends are great, but rather than spending all that money and you know billions of dollars and buying back shares, why not spend some of that money in drilling new wells? I think it's so it's a win-win for investors because I do think prices are going to remain high at least through the, this year. And if you're focused on that investment and can bring those wells online relatively quickly and, and capture that higher oil price, then then that is a good thing for investors as well. Absolutely. And, and Matt, you know, um, in, in a global stage oil conversation, you can't leave out OPEC. And OPEC plus has typically been that relief valve that has some spare capacity to bring onto market at will to help to control the prices, but they're in a pretty tight spot right now. Yeah, they are in a very tight spot. In fact, there's some pretty interesting messaging coming out. They were meeting today, the technical side of OPEC Plus, and there was speculation that they were going to talk about how to handle the Russian oil ban and, you know, basically suspending Russia from quotas, but they didn't talk about that, at least in the meeting today, June 1st. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how they respond to the Russian embargo. But one of the things that we'll link to this article from Reuters, it mentions that OPEC Plus has basically talked about increasing production and they're widely expected to raise July output targets by 432,000 barrels per day. Now, if you think back to the shortfall that we see today of 1.6 million barrels, at least as of February, you know that's only going to do so much. And even if they say they're going to raise production by 432,000 barrels per day, I'll believe it when I see it. I do think that they're probably pretty close to their limit in terms of you know supply. So they ha- are faced with similar constraints as we see here in the U.S. You know, even if they want to increase that, potentially they can't. So it'll be interesting to see Justin. You know exactly what happens with OPEC. I do think they're going to increase that. You know that basically cut in production that they agreed to in 2020. It does expire in September, um, but this particular article mentioned something that I thought was really interesting that even if they want to increase production, that they'll have limited spare capacity to increase production further. So I think that was an interesting take on that. So kind of, uh, I think, reinforces that thought that maybe OPEC plus doesn't have that much spare capacity, if any, right now. Right, exactly. And I, you know, I think that's definitely part of the conversation that's got to occur when you're talking about removing Russia from the OPEC table, can that oil even be replaced right now? And, you know, wasn't the United States going to receive pressure to be that stopgap? So we'll see what happens with that. So Matt, what is the outlook for 2022? You know, you you hear on the news, we're going to see $150 barrel oil. What's going to happen? Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, I think that, that, I mean, as far as the exact price, I do think, you know, you can look at the macro environment like we just talked about. I think one of the things too, to think about is the impact of this Russian embargo, like we mentioned, from a supply and demand, it's just going to further exacerbate the supply shortfall. So I do think it's going to put upward pressure on prices. You know, the the world is kind of waiting to hear what OPEC is going to do. It's possible that if they raise July output targets by more than expected, that could bring prices down a little bit. But once the reality of the market plays out, then I think 
you know, if they can't meet those targets, then the prices are just going to continue to go back up. Just, you know, I think what we have right now, you know, China's reopening to a certain extent. They've had some pretty draconian COVID lockdowns, as you probably have seen on social media and other news articles. And that is starting to be relaxed. So I do think that'll increase demand, you know, from China as they kind of get back to normal, so to speak. But at the same time, we have a weakening global economy. We have increased inflation. We have consumer spending that is potentially going to start going down. And so that's going to put a downward pressure on demand. Now, I do think those two things will slightly balance each other out to a certain extent. So I think we're going to continue to see an oil supply shortage through 2022. I would be surprised if we saw oil prices go significantly below $100 a barrel. It's certainly possible that it could drop down into the 80s and 90s, but I think that's probably the floor right now. The ceiling, you know, I think the sky's the limit. You know, I don't know where we're going to end up. I do think it's very possible we could hit $150 a barrel unless something significant changes. The interesting thing, you know, obviously that's going to mean higher energy prices for consumers globally, but particularly in the European Union, 75% of the Russian imports into the EU are via tanker. So they're going to suspend that and they're going to try to bring in a replacement. So one of the things in the EU, the refineries are configured for that Russian crude oil blend, which that Ural blend of crude, which is heavier and more has more sulfur. So it's called a medium sour oil. And there's only a few blends that mimic that, that those refineries can run. And that is Saudi Arabia's Arab light. You have Iraq, the Basra light is also pretty close. And then also some grades from Africa. So what we have, the situation right now, they were buying, you know, as of yesterday or the day before, they were able to buy Russian crude which was trading as of Monday, May 30th at a $35 discount to Brent. So what that means is their cost basis at those European refineries was at a, at a good discount. Now, all of a sudden, they're having to go buy uh, crude oil. Uh, the OPEC basket was at around $119 a barrel Monday before that embargo agreement was announced. And so if you factor in that in, you know they're paying... $35 a barrel more, which is close to a 33% increase, that is going to trickle down to consumers. And so if you think energy prices are high in Europe right now, I think it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better just because of the embargo. Now, I do think it's the right thing to do. You have to stand by your principles, but I do think that people in Europe need to be prepared for higher energy prices. You know, It's bad now. It's going to get worse, which we talk about energy poverty all the time. And it's a real issue. We need to be thinking about providing everybody access to cheap and reliable energy, no matter what form it's in. And I think we're in a situation where the policy decisions over the past few years are starting to rear their ugly heads and, you know, exacerbated by the current geopolitical situation. Couldn't agree more, Matt. And, you know, there's a huge deficit right now in the oil supply. So it'll be interesting to see if the refineries in the United States, if we can increase the capacity there, and that can make a difference. And maybe start to get into the export game. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think from a mineral and royalty owner perspective, the takeaway here is, you know, sock away some of that money you're getting in those higher royalty checks because I think the energy bill is going to go up, you know, price of oil and gas we're seeing, you know, is high, you know, from the, the markets like we talked about today, but then that trickles down 
to the price of diesel, price of gasoline, natural gas to heat your home, electricity prices as well. So, you know, something that it's, it's sort of, a, it's great to have a really big royalty check, but then on the other hand, you're not really getting the full benefit of that because your underlying energy costs are higher as well. So that sort of offsets some of that benefit. So I think it is good if we can um, increase supply, you know, kind of get the the market in balance, bring prices down a little bit. So then we're in more of an equilibrium. But I, I think we're probably going to be in 2023 before we see that happening. All right. Well, that wraps up this episode. Thanks again for listening. If you could do us a huge favor, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. It's the best way to help us out. Until next time, we'll talk to you later. Thanks again, Justin. Thanks, Matt. Thanks so much for listening to the Mineral Rights Podcast with your host, Matt Sands. Don't forget to subscribe and share at mineralrightspodcast.com. The Mineral Rights Podcast should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy.